Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres said in July that our world is facing a dramatic climate emergency. He said the goal to limit temperature rise to 1.5 degrees is in intensive care, but we risk seeing it lost irreversibly in the years to come. Achieving global carbon neutrality by 2050 is a crucial part of tackling this climate emergency. But rising restrictions on coal and oil imports from Russia due to the Russia-Ukraine conflict has added an extra layer to the crisis. So now we must ask ourselves, how will the energy security crisis impact efforts to achieve carbon neutrality? Some say now is the best time to accelerate global green energy transition. Others say we have to wait with a difficult winter just around the corner. Amid such global energy uncertainty, how to keep carbon neutrality high on the political agenda of the world's major players? How can developing countries, including China, strike a balance between energy transition and security? What's at stake? Welcome to this special edition of the Global Thinkers Forum brought to you by CGTN from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. I'm pleased to be joined from London by Anthony Froggard, Deputy Director of the Environment and Society Program of Chatham House. From New Jersey, the US, by Dr. Chris Craig, Senior Research Scientist of Princeton University. From Beijing, by Associate uh, Professor Teng Fei, Deputy Director of the Institute of Energy, Environment and Economy of Tsinghua University. And from South China's Shenzhen, by Jai Yongping, Senior Advisor on Carbon Neutrality of the Chinese Chinese tech giant Tencent. He is also former chief of the energy sector group at Asia Development Bank. The warmest welcome to all our panelists from around the world. Let me turn to my first guest, Professor Teng Fei there. As uh, we've heard and as mentioned basically very often in China, clear waters and green mountains are invaluable assets. Now this assertion was made by Mr. Xi Jinping as early as in 2005, while he was still serving as party chief of Zhejiang province in eastern China. Since then he has mentioned this on many, many occasions, both inside China and also international occasions. Um, now it has, of course, been written into China's top development uh, guidelines, plans, and as well as into the constitution of the ruling Communist Party of China, to, just to say how important this is. What's the relationship between this philosophy and China's uh, carbon neutrality goals? Well, I think this philosophy is the basis for China's carbon neutrality goals um, because of this philosophy basically says the natural resource has its value that on people. And that is also the case for the carbon emission and carbon neutralities that to maintain um, the sustainable development of humanity, we need to uh, reduce and limit our emission within a given space. This is so-called carbon space. And to achieve that, we need to recognize the value of that carbon space. And we also need to achieve that as a whole society. And that is uh, what has been 
uh, mentioned in this philosophy. And also, uh, we need to achieve this um, as a whole uh, from the international perspective. So um, as human society, we need to cooperate together to reduce our emission and to make our environmental safe. And because of there is only one earth. So from regard, I think that the carbon neutrality is very much in consistent with this uh, philosophy. And that is why China promote the idea of carbon neutrality and mm -hmm. use that as a basis that provide common goods that to the whole society. And that will be the China's dream and that will be the future of our society. Right. However, how to implement this philosophy, how to turn it into action is, let's say, uh, something of an art. Let's say um, I want to turn to Mr. Jai for my second question, because Chinese President Xi said this January that strategic thinking must be improved as people should bear in mind the big picture throughout the whole process of delivering the carbon peaking and neutrality goals. He said the relationship between development and emission reduction must be properly handled. What does that mean and what's the implication from uh, China's perspective on the global fight to peak carbon emissions? Yeah, thank you for the, for the question. I think most important thing is to bear in mind that this carbon neutrality uh, ambition should be, first of all, people-oriented. When we say uh, we will reduce carbon emissions, we would continue to improve life, uh, living standards of people. When I remember my work in Africa, I still see people uh, living without access to electricity, without clean energy for cooking. So I think when we uh, say we're, we're pursuing uh, improvement in energy efficiency, uh, reducing carbon emissions, we have to bear in mind that we continue to improve life of uh, living standard of the poor people. So that's first point. And the second point is that this is a historic chance for China and for the whole world to upgrade ourselves uh, in the way we are living and we are, we are producing products uh, by reducing a reliance on heavily polluting fossil fuels. So this will give, give us a chance to move to another level in our development civilization. Let me turn to my European guests and uh, Anthony, uh, Mr. Frogard, if you will. Uh, we are looking at a pretty intense situation in Europe, obviously because of the uh, um, Russian-Ukraine uh, conflict. Now, European countries were ambitious to wean themselves uh, from the dependence of imported oil and gas, and now with the energy crisis, how do you assess the situation, the level of difficulty that European countries are facing in meeting their carbon neutrality goals and uh, how much headwinds are European governments facing in doing just that? Yeah, I mean, clearly the situation in Europe is very serious. Um, Europe uh, has had, an, or prior to the war, had significant uh, dependency on Russia for its energy sources, and that's coal, oil and gas, and particularly gas. While that is happening, there is a, a switch in fossil fuel supplies. So the EU is importing more fossil fuels from other parts of the world, the United States in particular, in terms of liquefied natural gas, and is burning more coal domestically. So on, on that side, it, it, it is negative for climate change, but there are also very positive things taking place. And if I can just give two examples, the first, if you look at the, the role of renewable energy, 
So renewable energies have been promoted in the EU primarily for, for climate change reasons. And you look, if you look back to 2015, at the time of the Paris Climate Conference, the EU said it would reduce its emissions by 40% by 2030. And that involved renewables providing around 32% of the EU's energy. Then as the EU increased its pledge in terms of 2030 carbon emissions for the Glasgow conference last year to 55% reduction in emissions, they then increased the share that renewables would play to 40% of total energy supply. So as the carbon emissions ambition increased, so did the role of renewable energy. And then now what we've seen in the last few months is as there is a desire to decrease dependency on, on Russian fuels very quickly, the target for the role of renewables has increased even further. So it's now 45% of the EU's energy by 2030. So what we're seeing is renewables playing a, a, a role both in energy security and in climate change. Mm. So basically finding opportunities in a time of crisis. Um, Dr. Craig, let me turn to you. Um, you seem to be to have invested quite a lot of your time and energy into the role of the private sector in combating climate change. And you published uh, uh, in a recent article about the, a large gap between the ambitious pledges being made by many companies and their actual operations, but also that there is, you said, often insufficient data to verify alignment. So what explains the phenomenon and how significant is that a problem? in the global efforts to tackle climate change? Yeah, thanks for the question. Uh, look, I think we're at a stage now where since 2015, we've become very serious about the need for action. And so we're making these promises around transitioning to net zero. Now the hard bit gets, comes in, right? So making the promises easy, executing on the promises is really difficult. And, and so I think we've seen companies at a stage where for a multitude of reasons, it might be shareholder pressure, it might be just societal pressure and customer pressure. Uh, that they, they know they need to transition. Uh, but you're, you're talking about, you know, generation companies, you're talking about transportation companies, uh, oil and gas companies who, who have this competing dilemma of an incumbent asset base, supply chains, customers, etc. And they can't just switch that off overnight. And so they're all grappling uh, really with how they're going to make that transition. Meanwhile, the promise still stands. And so what we tried to do was really just put a, you know, shine a light on the fact that there's still a big gap between this ambition and what they actually have to do. Uh, but I think the same is true for countries. Right? It's, it's true of companies, but I think all countries are also wrestling with this challenge. Let me turn to Professor Tung to pick up on that uh, very important note. Um, maybe in the short term, um, Chris was talking about, uh, maybe we're going to see a rising level of emissions. What's the expectation from China? Because we know China imported uh, quite, a, quite a bit of, uh, quite some oil from Russia. What's the rationale behind China's moves? And uh, does that say anything about China's pledge to uh, pledge in terms of carbon peaking and carbon neutrality? Uh, before the April of this year, the Russia oil is more expensive than other resources. So uh, after April, the Russia reduced its oil price and uh, the Russia oil became much more cheaper. 
about 20% than other oil sources. So that is basically the reason at why China increased its oil in, uh, uh, import from Russia because of for every decrease of uh, $1 oil price, China can save about $4 billion every year. Does I that also think, mean that China is going to consume more oil? Um, I don't think so, because of if they look at the numbers that in the last year, 2021, China consumed about 700 um, million tons of oil, uh, a decrease of about 3% uh, compared with the year uh, 2020. And also China is developing a lot of policy that to incentivize the reduction of oil consumption in transportation sectors. Uh, for example, that China is the largest uh, or the number one uh, uh, new energy vehicle market, both the uh, producers and consumers. In last year, China produced more than 3 million new energy vehicles, much larger than United States and Europe. And that is a clear signal that how China will move towards a low carbon transportation sector, and that will also reduce the, uh, uh, China's oil consumption in the future and help to achieve China's carbon picking and carbon neutrality targets. Mm. Let's take on the topic of uh, the role that Chinese uh, tech companies or Chinese internet uh, giants can potentially play in um, bringing down carbon emissions. And I want to turn to Mr. Jai. What kind of new technologies is being implemented or experimented by uh, technology companies such as Tencent, Huawei, Baidu, and so on and so forth? And is there a gap as well between the ambitions of the Chinese private sector with the kind of actions they're following through? Yes, as you mentioned that uh, I currently working as a technical advisor to Tencent for its ambition on carbon neutrality. This itself uh, a proof that uh, the company is uh, fully committed uh, to continue to su support uh, the carbon neutrality, not only for the company itself. Actually, we have set a target for the company itself for achieving carbon neutrality by 2030. This is for our company's own business. But beyond that, I think the most important part of our, our ambition, like other tech giants in China or elsewhere, uh, is our ability to use digital technologies to support the whole society in delivering carbon neutrality objective in three ways. First of all, uh, supporting a change of lifestyle of consumers through our uh, through WeChat, for example, the uh, social media service we are we are having. Secondly, Tencent is using its digital technology platforms to support business or companies in transforming their way of production, so that the production process will be uh, more efficient with less emissions. And we're also looking at way of reducing their emissions by combination of different technologies. So that's our support to business. The third point is our support to uh, nurturing the new technologies, as you mentioned, that, uh, for example, in hydrogen energy storage, carbon capture and stor storage, CCUS, so that Tencent is supporting these emerging technologies, as we know that for the country or the whole world to achieve carbon neutrality, 
by by the middle of this century, we will need these technologies. Mm. Uh, Mr. Frogart, let me turn to you for some European perspective. Uh, what's the situation on the private sector or the use of innovative technology in terms of uh, accelerating efforts towards carbon neutrality goals uh, that you can share with us at this moment? Well, I think Europe has been, uh, and I hope will continue to be, a sort of major driver of technology change. And I think that's it's important both in terms of what it develops domestically, but also in terms of the market that it creates. Uh, and I, I think a really interesting example is in the turn of the century when you saw the EU, or in fact Germany, um, put in place feed-in tariffs for solar PV. So for the first time, if you put it installed solar panels, you were guaranteed uh, a, a fixed price for the electricity that was generated. And that encouraged a real boom in the development of solar panels. And that then encouraged other countries, in particular China, to develop a, a solar PV industry that could then supply PV to, to Europe. And, and we've seen that uh, occurring very clearly. I mean, China now is, is the major supplier of, of global PV panels, around 70% uh, are, are produced here uh, in China, but it's the EU that created the policy and the market to enable that to happen. Uh, and I think we're seeing similar things uh, in terms of electric vehicles. We'll see that to some degree in hydrogen and storage. So the, the EU, because it is, I would say, quite advanced in terms of its decarbonisation plans and looking at what the implications of that are. So I, I mentioned before the, the, the plan is that 40% of the EU's energy comes from renewables by 2030. And that's energy, that's not electricity. So the, the share of renewable electricity uh, within the next decade may well be 60, 70, or even 80%. And that has a huge implication for how the grid operates. And then we'll, then we'll need new technologies, the balancing opportunities, the, the storage opportunities or the, the storage technologies. And so Europe is, through its very structural changes within its markets, within its, its sectors, uh, encouraging innovation and trialing new technologies. And I think that is a really, really important role for Europe. Hmm. Um, Dr. Craig, are you equally optimistic about the kind of uh, prospects that uh, Europe is seeing? Um, share with us your assessment, please. And also in the United States, President Biden just signed into, uh, legis into law a legislation called Inflation Reduction Act, which pledges uh, 370 billion US dollars in climate investment over, over the next decade. Some people are welcoming it, saying that uh, uh, this will cut US greenhouse gas emissions by about 20, uh, 30 to 40% below 2005 levels. Do you see the US on track in fulfilling its carbon goals and even ahead of time because of such legislation? Uh, yeah, thank you. Look, um, as of the last couple of weeks, obviously things turned around in the US. We were feeling a little dejected for a while, but uh, the Inflation Reduction Act got passed. And, you know, whilst it is not as ambitious as the Build Back Better Act that had been proposed and had died over the past year, it, it is certainly going to make a big difference. Um, our assessment is that it should put us on track to a 40% reduction uh, by 2030 relative to 2005 goals. Now, that's short of the President's and stated ambition of 50 to 52%, but I think it's consistent with where we think we need to be 
uh, to reach net zero by 2050. So I think um, I think the US is in much better shape now, and I think you know the execution is still there, right? We have all the incentives we need. It's a coordination challenge now because we've got to simultaneously expand demand for clean hydrogen and supply. And so there could be some chicken or egg issues that won't be solved simply with incentives. Uh, and I think the same is true in Europe. I think we, we have the right policy settings. We now need to get the right kind of stimulus between government and the private sector to coordinate these expand these what I think are very ambitious expansions of new technologies. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is the point. To fulfill climate commitments, countries are facing multiple hurdles. Should we be adjusting our expectations around energy policy commitments? Or is now the right moment to make these crucial but difficult changes amid global uncertainties? How to keep the bigger picture in perspective and find a way to promote international cooperation? I'm pleased to be joined in alphabetical orders from Gold Coast uh, Australia by Professor Brendan McKee, Director of Climate Action Beacon of Griffith University. Professor Chie joining us from Xiamen, Southern China. He is uh, from the Society Hub of Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. He's also Professor of uh, School of Public Policy and Management of Tsinghua University. Professor McKee, let me get your insights. How do you look at the impact of this on global climate change collaboration and cooperation? Of course, we're not going to say who is to blame, who is what, but the sheer impact that this is going to have on the efforts that has been unfolding? Yes, this is very serious. You know, we really are at a critical juncture, I actually say a critical juncture in the history of the human endeavour on this planet. I mean, we, we are in the midst of a climate emergency. You know, we're used to thinking about, I mean, what we're seeing play out with our geopolitics. And as you say, we're not here to talk about who's right or wrong, but just looking at the real politic of what's unfolding, it's actually a very you know, long-standing tension in international negotiations, the wonderful, you know, the wonderful negotiations that the UN has been moderating, the tension between short-term national self-interest and the long-term common good. Now, when it comes to the climate change problem, with international negotiations, we're used to thinking of them in what we call a, as a zero-sum game. There can be some barter, there can be some winners and some losers, if I, win a, if I win a bit, you have to lose a bit, or you can win a bit and I can lose a bit. Call it a zero-sum game. But climate change is a non-zero-sum game. We either all win or we all lose. And, and this is what the science is telling us very clearly, that there is no escape from climate change impacts. Uh, wealthy countries are as exposed to climate change impacts and risks as are poor countries. They actually have more built assets uh, that can be damaged by extreme weather events. Um, they also have more adaptive capacity. And so this is why the UN uh, in the Paris Agreement, there's what's called the, glo the Global Goal on Adaptation, which is about this shared responsibility to look after each other because there's, no, there's nowhere that is safe from climate change impacts. So we've got this tension between what the science is telling us we're experiencing and looking at and if you like, conventional ways of thinking about our international relationships. The climate change problem is one where we really have to 
do this radical collaboration, put aside our short-term national self-interests and, and, and work together. And it's very unfortunate that current geopolitics is putting up barriers to that. Mm. Professor Chi, I would like to get some uh, Chinese perspective from you naturally. I mean, of course, China is committed to fighting climate change, and yet it seems to a lot of people that this decision to suspend uh, dialogue with the United States on, on climate change uh, is an unfortunate one which looks to impede the much-needed cooperation between the two sides on this critical issue. What is China's consideration, and why does China decide to take this step despite the much-needed cooperation that uh, that is already very much in deficit? I think you are absolutely right. This is a very unfortunate uh, situation that the United States and China are now suspending the climate talks. You, you know, we, we have to uh, realize that China-U.S. cooperation on climate change has been crucial in global governance the uh, global governance and uh, actions on climate change. You know, uh, you know. Recall back in uh, November 2014 when uh, U.S. and China signed a joint announcement on uh, clean energy and climate cooperations. Next year, September 2015, President Xi and President Obama signed a joint declaration on climate change cooperation, and these documents actually set foundation for the Paris Agreement. Which was signed, or which was reached, reached in December 2015, and even last year and last November in at Glasgow, at the very last minute, COP20, COP26, and U.S. and China worked together to uh, to to release that joint declaration on uh, climate actions. So we had very good and uh, productive cooperation back then. Actually, climate change. Was, uh, uh, was was one of the very few issues that the two countries can actually talk to each other. But to work together, it takes two parties. But this cooperation really requires a broader foundation for the cooperation on climate change. And uh, one China policy is actually the very critical part for this foundation. It's a cornerstone, in fact. When this foundation you know, when, when this one China policy is hollowed out, you know, by irresponsible actions, then the foundation is shaken and the cooperation is, uh, is more like a shoot without a root, right? The, uh, then uh, sooner or later, you know, this shoot and the leaves on it will, will be withering. This is a, is a very critical moment for the two countries to work together, but we, we do not really see the kind of a political, geopolitical environment for this climate cooperation. This is very, very unfortunate. And with that, we come to the end of uh, this Global Thinkers Forum. And uh, on behalf of the whole team, thank you very much for joining us. And you've got the point.